Section 32 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4 by James Boswell, Section 32. On the evening of Saturday, May the 15th, he was in fine spirits at our Essex Head Club he told us i dined yesterday at mrs garrick's with mrs carter footnote forty-six years earlier johnson wrote of this lady i have composed a greek epigram to eliza and think she ought to be celebrated in as many different languages as louis le grand miss burney described her in seventeen eighty as really a noble-looking woman i never saw age so graceful in the female sex yet her whole face seems to beam with goodness piety and philanthropy End of footnote. miss hannah moore and miss fanny burney three such women are not to be found i know not where i could find a fourth except mrs lennox who was superior to them all footnote mrs thrale says that though mrs lennox's books are generally approved nobody likes her End of boswell what had you them all to yourself sir johnson i had them all as much as they were had but it might have been better had there been more company there boswell might not mrs montague have been a fourth johnson sir mrs montague does not make a trade of her wit but mrs montague is a very extraordinary woman she has a constant stream of conversation and it is always impregnated it has always meaning Footnote. september seventeen seventy eight mrs thrale mrs montague is the first woman for literary knowledge in england and if in england i hope i may say in the world dr johnson i believe you may madam she diffuses more knowledge in her conversation than any woman i know or indeed almost any man mrs thrale i declare i know no man equal to her take away yourself and burke for that art it is curious that mrs thrale and boswell should both thus instance burke miss burney writes her in much more moderate terms allowing a little for parade and ostentation which her power in wealth and rank in literature offer some excuse for her conversation is very agreeable she is always reasonable and sensible and sometimes instructive and entertaining these five ladies all lived to a great age mrs montague was eighty when she died mrs lennox eighty three miss burney madame d'arblay eighty seven miss moore and mrs miss carter eighty eight their hostess mrs garrick was ninety seven or ninety eight end of mr burke has a constant stream of conversation johnson yes sir if a man were to go by chance at the same time with burke under a shed to shanashah he would say this is an extraordinary man 
if Burke should go into a stable to see his horse dressed, the ostler would say, We have had an extraordinary man here. Footnote. Miss Burney, describing how she first saw Burke, says, I had been told that Burke was not expected, yet I could conclude this gentleman to be no other. There was an evident, a striking superiority in his demeanour, his eye, his motions, that announced him no common man. See Ante, where Johnson said of Burke, his stream of mind is perpetual. End of footnote. Boswell. Foot was a man who never failed in conversation. If he had gone into a stable, Johnson, sir, if he had gone into a stable, the ostler would have said, Here has been a comical fellow, but he would not have respected him. Boswell. And so the ostler would have answered him, would have given him as good as he brought, as the common saying is. Johnson. Yes, sir and Foote would have answered the ostler. When Burke does not descend to be merry, his conversation is very superior indeed. There is no proportion between the powers which he shows in serious talk and in jocularity. When he lets himself down to that, he is in the kennel. Footnote. Kennel is a strong word to apply to Burke, but in his jocularity he sometimes let himself down to indelicate stories. In the House of Commons he had told one, and a very stupid one too, not a year before. Horace Walpole speaks of Burke's pursuit of wit, even to puerility. He adds, Burke himself always aimed at wit, but was not equally happy in public and private. In the former, nothing was so luminous, so striking, so abundant. In private, it was forced, unnatural, and bombast. See Ante, where Wilkes said that in his oratory there was a strange want of taste. End of footnote. I have in another place opposed, and I hope with success, Dr. Johnson's very singular and erroneous notion as to Mr. Burke's pleasantry. Mr. Wyndham now said low to me that he differed from our great friend in this observation, for that Mr. Burke was often very happy in his merriment. It would not have been right for either of us to have contradicted Johnson at this time, in a society all of whom did not know and value Mr. Burke as much as we did might have occasioned something more rough, and at any rate would probably have checked the flow of Johnson's good humour. He called to us, with a sudden air of exultation, as the thought started into his mind, Oh, gentlemen, I must tell you a very great thing. The Empress of Russia has ordered the Rambler to be translated into the Russian language, so I shall be read on the banks of the Volga. Footnote. I have since heard that the report was not well founded, but the elation discovered by Johnson in the belief that it was true showed a noble ardour for literary fame. Boswell. Johnson wrote on February the ninth, One thing which I have just heard you will think to surpass expectation. 
the chaplain of the factory at Petersburg relates that the Rambler is now, by the command of the Empress, translating into Russian, and has promised, when it is printed, to send me a copy. Stockdale records that in 1773 the Empress of Russia engaged six English literary gentlemen for instructors of her young nobility in her academy at St. Petersburg. He was offered one of the posts. Her zeal may have gone yet further, and she may have wished to open up English literature to those who could not read English. Beauclerc's library was offered for sale to the Russian ambassador. Miss Burney in 1789 said the newspaper reported that Angelica Kaufman is making drawings from Evelina for the Empress of Russia. End of footnote. Horace boasts that his fame would extend as far as the banks of the Rhone. Now, the Wolga is farther from me than the Rhone was from Horace. Boswell, you must certainly be pleased with this, sir. Johnson, I am pleased, sir, to be sure. A man is pleased to find he has succeeded in that which he has endeavoured to do. One of the company mentioned his having seen a noble person driving in his carriage and looking exceedingly well, notwithstanding his great age. Johnson. Ah, sir, that is nothing. Bacon observes that a stout, healthy old man is like a tower undermined. On Sunday, May the 16th, I found him alone. He talked of Mrs. Thrale with much concern, saying, Sir, she has done everything wrong since Thrale's bridle was off her neck, and was proceeding to mention some circumstances which have since been the subject of public discussion, when he was interrupted by the arrival of Dr. Douglas, now Bishop of Salisbury. Dr. Douglas, upon this occasion, refuted a mistaken notion which is very common in Scotland, that the ecclesiastical discipline of the Church of England, though duly enforced, is insufficient to preserve the morals of the clergy, inasmuch as all delinquents may be screened by appealing to the convocation, being therefore authorised by the king to sit for the dispatch of business, the appeal never can be heard. Dr. Douglas observed that this was founded upon ignorance, for that the bishops have sufficient power to maintain discipline, and that the sitting of the convocation was wholly immaterial in this respect, it being not a court of judicature, but like a parliament, to make canons and regulations as times may require. Johnson, talking of the fear of death, said, Some people are not afraid because they look upon salvation as the effect of an absolute decree, and think they feel in themselves the marks of sanctification. Others, and those the most rational in my opinion, look upon salvation as conditional, and as they never can be sure that they have complied with the conditions, they are afraid. In one of his little manuscript diaries about this time, I find a short notice which marks his amiable disposition more certainly than a thousand studied declarations. Afternoon spent cheerfully and elegantly, I hope, without offence to God or man, 
though in no holy duty, yet in the general exercise and cultivation of benevolence. On Monday, May the 17th, I dined with him at Mr. Dilly's, where were Colonel Valiancy, the Reverend Dr. Gibbons, and Mr. Capper Loft, who, though a most zealous Whig, has a mind so full of learning and knowledge, and so much exercised in various departments, and with all so much liberality, that the stupendous powers of the literary Goliath, though they did not frighten this little David of popular spirit, could not but excite his admiration. Footnote. H. C. Robinson describes him as an author on an infinity of subjects. His books were on law, history, poetry, antiquities, divinity, politics. He adds, Godwin, Loft, and Thalwell are the only three persons I know, except Hazlitt, who grieve at the late events, the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo. He found, long after his death, a manuscript by him in these words, Rousseau, Euripides, Tasso, Racine, Cicero, Virgil, Petrarch, Richardson, if I had five millions of years to live upon this earth, these I would read daily with increasing delight. End of footnote. There was also Mr. Braithwaite of the post office, that amiable and friendly man, who with modest and unassuming manners has associated with many of the wits of the age. Johnson was very quiescent today. Perhaps, too, I was indolent. I find nothing more of him in my notes, but that when I mentioned that I had seen in the King's Library sixty-three editions of my favourite, Thomas Kempis, amongst which it was in eight languages, Latin, German, French, Italian, Spanish, English, Arabic, and Armenian, he said he thought it unnecessary to collect many editions of a book which were all the same except as to the paper and print. He would have the original and all the translations and all the editions which had any variations in the text. He approved of the famous collections of editions of Horace by Douglas, mentioned by Pope, who is said to have had a closet filled with them, and he added, Every man should try to collect one book in that manner, and present it to a public library. On Tuesday, May the 18th, I saw him for a short time in the morning, I told him that the mob had called out as the king passed, No fox, no fox, which I did not like. Footnote. The king opened parliament this day. Hannah Moore, during the election, found the mob favourable to fox. One night, in a sedan chair, she was stopped with the news that it was not safe to go through Covent Garden. There were a hundred armed men she was told, who, suspecting every chairman belonged to Brooks, would fall upon us. A vast number of people followed me, crying out, It is Mrs. Fox. None but Mrs. Fox's wife would dare come into Covent Garden in a chair. She is going to canvass in the dark. Horace Walpole wrote on April 11th, In truth, Mr. Fox has all the popularity in Westminster. End of footnote. 
He said, They were right, sir. I said I thought not, for it seemed to be making Mr. Fox the king's competitor. There being no audience, so that there could be no triumph in a victory, he fairly agreed with me. I said it might do very well if explained thus. Let us have no fox, understanding it as a prayer to his majesty not to appoint that gentleman minister. On Wednesday, May the 19th, I sat a part of the evening with him by ourselves. I observed that the death of our friends might be a consolation against the fear of our own dissolution, because we might have more friends in the other world than in this. He perhaps felt this as a reflection upon his apprehension as to death, and said with heat, How can a man know where his departed friends are, or whether they will be his friends in the other world? How many friendships have you known formed upon principles of virtue? Most friendships are formed by caprice or by chance, mere confederacies in vice or leagues in folly. We talked of our worthy friend Mr. Langton. He said, I know not who will go to heaven if Langton does not. Sir, I could almost say, sit anima mea cum Langtono. I mentioned a very eminent friend, a virtuous man. Footnote. Boswell twice speaks of W. G. Hamilton as an eminent friend of Johnson. He was not Boswell's friend. But Boswell does not here say a friend of ours. By eminent friend, Burke is generally meant, and he possibly is meant here. Boswell, it is true, speaks of his orderly and amiable domestic habits, but then Boswell mentions the person here as a virtuous man. If Burke is meant, Johnson's suspicions would seem to be groundless. End of footnote. Johnson, yes, sir, but blank blank has not the evangelical virtue of Langton. Blank blank, I am afraid, would not scruple to pick up a wench. He, however, charged Mr. Langton with what he thought want of judgment upon an interesting occasion. When I was ill, said he, I desired he would tell me sincerely in what he thought my life was faulty. So he brought me a sheet of paper on which he had written down several texts of scripture recommending Christian charity. And when I questioned him what occasion I had given for such an animadversion, all he could say amounted to this, that I sometimes contradicted people in conversation. Now what harm does it do to any man to be contradicted? Boswell. I suppose he meant the manner of doing it. Roughly, harshly. Johnson. And who was the worse for that? Boswell. It hurts people of weak nerves. Johnson. I know no such weak nerved people. Mr. Burke, to whom I related this conference, said, It is well if, when a man comes to die, he has nothing heavier upon his conscience than having been a little rough in conversation. Johnson, at the time when the paper was presented to him, 
though at first pleased with the attention of his friend whom he thanked in an earnest manner soon exclaimed in a loud and angry tone what is your drift sir sir joshua reynolds pleasantly observed that it was a scene for a comedy to see a penitent get into a violent passion and belabour his confessor Footnote. after all i cannot but be of opinion that as mr langton was seriously requested by dr johnson to mention what appeared to him erroneous in the character of his friend he was bound as an honest man to intimate what he really thought which he certainly did in the most delicate manner so that johnson himself when in a quiet frame of mind was pleased with it the texts suggested are now before me and i shall quote a few of them blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth i therefore the prisoner of the lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering forbearing one another in love and above all these things put on charity which is the bond of perfectness charity suffereth long and is kind charity envieth not charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly is not easily provoked boswell johnson in the rambler number twenty eight had almost foretold what would happen for escaping these and a thousand other deceits many expedients have been proposed some have recommended the frequent consultation of a wise friend admitted to intimacy and encouraged by sincerity but this appears a remedy by no means adapted to general use for in order to secure the virtue of one it presupposes more virtue in two than will generally be found in the first such a desire of rectitude and amendment as may incline him to hear his own accusation from the mouth of him whom he esteems and by whom therefore he will always hope that his faults are not discovered and in the second such zeal and honesty as will make him content for his friend's advantage to lose his kindness End of footnote. i have preserved no more of his conversation at the times when i saw him during the rest of this month till sunday the thirtieth of may when i met him in the evening at mr hull's where there was a large company both of ladies and gentlemen sir james johnston happened to say that he paid no regard to the arguments of counsel at the bar of the house of commons because they were paid for speaking johnson nay sir argument is argument you cannot help paying regard to their arguments if they are good if it were testimony you might disregard if you knew that it were purchased there is a beautiful image in bacon upon this subject testimony is like an arrow shot from a longbow the force of it depends on the strength of the hand that draws it argument is like an arrow from a crossbow which has equal force though shot by a child footnote malone points out that the passage is not in bacon but in boyle 
and that it is quoted in Johnson's Dictionary, in the later editions only, under crossbow. It is as follows. Testimony is like the shot of a longbow, which owes its efficacy to the force of the shooter. Argument is like the shot of the crossbow, equally forcible whether discharged by a giant or a dwarf. See Smollett's works for a somewhat fuller account by Dr. Moore of what was said by Johnson this evening. End of footnote. He had dined that day at Mr. Hull's, and Miss Helen Maria Williams being expected in the evening, Mr. Hull put into his hands her beautiful ode on the piece. Footnote. The piece made by that very able statesman, the Earl of Shelbourne, now Marquess of Lansdowne, which may fairly be considered as the foundation of all the prosperity of Great Britain since that time. Boswell. In the winter of 1782-83, preliminary treaties of peace were made with the United States, France and Spain, and a suspension of arms with Holland. The ode is made up of such lines as the following. While meek philosophy explores creation's vast stupendous round with piercing gaze sublime she soars and bursts the system's distant bound End of johnson read it over and when this elegant and accomplished young lady was presented to him footnote, in the first edition of my work the epithet amiable was given i was sorry to be obliged to strike it out but I could not in justice suffer it to remain, after this young lady had not only written in favour of the savage anarchy with which France has been visited, but had, as I have been informed by good authority, walked without horror over the ground of the Tuileries, when it was strewed with the naked bodies of the faithful Swiss guards who were barbarously massacred for having bravely defended against a crew of ruffians the monarch whom they had taken an oath to defend. From Dr. Johnson she could now expect not endearment, but repulsion. Boswell. End of footnote. He took her by the hand in the most courteous manner and repeated the finest stanza of her poem. This was the most delicate and pleasing compliment he could pay. Her respectable friend Dr. Kippis, from whom I had this anecdote, was standing by, and was not a little gratified. Miss Williams told me that the only other time she was fortunate enough to be in Dr. Johnson's company, he asked her to sit down by him, which she did, and upon her inquiring how he was, he answered, I am very ill indeed, madam. I am very ill even when you are near me. What should I be were you at, at a distance? He had now a great desire to go to Oxford as his first jaunt after his illness. We talked of it for some days, and I had promised to accompany him. He was impatient and fretful to-night, because I did not at once agree to go with him on Thursday. When I considered how ill he had been, and what allowance should be made for the influence of sickness upon his temper, I resolved to indulge him though with some inconvenience to myself, 
as I wished to attend the musical meeting in honour of Handel in Westminster Abbey on the following Saturday. Footnote. This year, forming as it did exactly a quarter of a century since Handel's death and a complete century since his birth, was sought, says the Gentleman's Magazine, as the first public periodical occasion for bringing together musical performers in England. Dr. Burney writes, Foreigners must have been astonished at so numerous a band moving in such exact measure without the assistance of a coryphaeus to beat time. Rousseau says that the more time is beaten, the less it is kept. There were upwards of five hundred performers. End of footnote. In the midst of his own diseases and pains, he was ever compassionate to the distresses of others and actively earnest in procuring them aid, as appears from a note to Sir Joshua Reynolds of June in these words. I am ashamed to ask for some relief for a poor man to whom I hope I have given what I can be expected to spare. The man importunes me, and the blow goes round. I am going to try another air on Thursday. End of section 32